Hello and welcome to Chainsaw Matinee. Everybody take your seats. We have such sights to show you. I'm Kai. Hey! I'm Marty. I'm here. And I'm Je- I mean, I'm Aaron. Hi. <laughs> the fucking fuck. Oh my Hi, god. Aaron. Hello! We are here. Our first episode under our brand new name, new art, and new music. Uh... All created by our lovely, wonderful co-hosts. So, Yay. round of applause. Give claps to Marty and Hannah for uh, making some really cool stuff. And uh, we are claps glad to, to be here. I know we have announced on Twitter and talked in our previous episode about the rebrand. But for anyone out of the loop, we are rebranded. We are Netflix and Kill No More. Now, going forward, our podcast is Chainsaw Matinee. We are opening ourselves up to horror movies outside of Netflix, which, to be fair, we kind of already did that. But now it's official in the name. So there. Yeah. No more pretense. That's right. Yeah, we kind of we kind of started the podcast in the months immediately leading up to a... To the launch of a streaming service exclusively dedicated to horror movies. Yeah. So for like half a yeah. decade there, for like half a decade there was egg on our face regarding that. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it was a long time coming. Yeah. Hey, it's all right. So, it is also Pride Month. Happy Pride, everybody! And I was thinking for Pride Month, it would be a great way to kick off our rebrand by talking about the Clive Barker film Nightbreed. Which, um, while not an explicitly queer film, Clive Barker, the director, is a gay man. And there are definitely some very strong queer undertones, which I am very excited to talk it's about. It's so gay. Very gay. It's so gay. Yes. I love it. Yeah. And it's very gay. It's funny, like, there is a heterosexual relationship that feels like a parody. Because they're so, like, Ken and Barbie that I'm like, wow. Like, this... <laughs> It's like it's mocking heterosexuality, but uh, we can get into that. Well, and to me. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I just feel like they insert this kind of forbidden love angle that, like, yes, has always kind of been done for, like, straight romances to keep them spicy instead of just doing actual forbidden romances, but whatever. Um, But it does feel like that extra layer of their relationship does insert a queer reading of, like, no, you can't be together. And they're like, why? We love each other, god damn it. And it's June. Yeah, knowing Barker's taste, that actor was definitely the kind of man he would have wanted to fuck, but I'll tell the Clive Barker's undying story later. I think I tell it yes. every time we talk about Clive Barker. <laughs> Which we have a lot. Because um, actually, so the mm. other reason that I suggested this movie is because our very first episode of Netflix and Kill was about Hellraiser. In which Aaron was a guest, so of course we have to repeat tradition. Aaron, you're our good luck charm. And we're talking about another Clive Barker movie. If I'm your good luck charm, I'd hate to see your bad luck charm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's me. That'd be me. <laughs> oh, you both at the same time. No, our bad luck charm. Uh, rock, paper, scissors for it. Shall not be named. But yes. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022? <laughs> Yeah, that's the yeah. that's the bad luck charm. <laughs> Actually, maybe that was a good luck charm because it did make us finally decide to rebrand. <laughs> yeah, a movie that was so bad that we decided our podcast did not even need to have the word Netflix in the name. <laughs> yep. Jeez. Oh, so, uh, let's talk about Nightbreed. Fighter of the Daybreed. Wow. Champion of the sun. <laughs> Actually not, because some of them die in the sun. Yeah. So is this based on a Clive Barker book? It or is. was this written specifically for the screen? It's based on one of his books. 
believe yeah, a short story yeah. from one of his anthologies. Uh, it's based yeah, it's on a, Cabal. Yeah, it's a novella. It's called Cabal. Nice. Which yeah. I think his novellas have all been compiled in one place. I don't yeah, really remember. Yeah, I think so, too. Like Clive Barker's From a Buick 8 or something. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I've got to pull up Wikipedia because I can't remember any of the characters' names. I remember Boone and uh, his girlfriend, whose name is not Lori, but for some reason it's Lori in my head. Yeah, and uh, I know Decker was... Uh, David Cronenberg's character. Why is David Cronenberg so hot in this movie? It upsets me. It's the serial killer angle, and I will not back down from this. Uh... It's like the strong, silent, I'm gonna gaslight you. Why do I have a thing for like therapists in horror media who just like to gaslight people into thinking they murdered a bunch he of people? Does, he does kind of have a Hannibal thing going, doesn't he? I hmm. am. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Well, I, I, uh, I, I don't see it, but I, I respect y'all. I also like the Her women. Her name is Lori. So. Oh my god! Can I, I can't wait to talk about the side characters in this movie because oh, they are so great, so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, the movie opens with our protagonists Boone and Lori who are boyfriend and girlfriend, and uh, Boone keeps having dreams of a mysterious other city called Midian that's full of monsters, and um, he's seeing a psychiatrist for this because he thinks there's something wrong with him. And it turns out his psychiatrist, who is played by David Cronenberg, is actually a serial killer, and he gaslights Boone and convinces him that he's actually the serial killer, and tries to frame him for it. It gives him LSD, which leads to like some trippy ass scenes. Okay, another parallel between this and Hannibal is like the sex scene is just like really trippy <laughs> and weird. I'm like, this is this is <laughs> yeah. reminding me of Hannibal with like the weird kaleidoscope sex. Yeah, they kind of like layered the shots on top of each other. I couldn't tell if it was the same shot reused or if and they just timed it differently or if they did several shots and just layered them on top of each other. After a while, it, it was kind of hard to tell exactly what was happening between like the the merging of their bodies. It was really cool. I, yeah, I enjoyed that. It was an yeah, it was like interesting um filmmaking technique. So Boone is um hit by a truck. And sent to the hospital where he meets this guy named Narciss, who keeps ranting about, like, the city Midian. And um, he's like, it's real, and we have to go there. And um, everyone thinks he's crazy, but Boone is like, maybe he isn't crazy. So he tries to go and find it and uh, encounters some monster people. And... uh, he gets so they attack him and um he tries to escape and then decker shows up with a bunch of police officers who just shoot him because that's what police do okay this this fucking scene though it caught me off guard the first time i watched it um well okay first off they like the monster bites him and then he like encounters decker and decker is like Oh no, I totally believe you um, that it's real now. And then he like turns around and yells, he's got a gun. And then they just all shoot him. And it's like really um, out of nowhere. And it caught me off guard. And like all I could do was like nervous laugh because it was just like, what the hell? I think more than anything, the violence in this movie is weird to me because it feels in any time when there's not violence and the violence isn't gratuitous by barker standards whenever there isn't violence happening on screen it always just kind of feels like a kid's movie to me yeah it like it just it has like that it has like that uh it, okay it feels like um uh the fucking little monsters movie a little bit oh see fucking i was thinking right like, <laughs> oh my god it has x-men vibes also is like yeah kind of it's got what i was getting uh, Nightcrawler would definitely fit in with this crowd. I'm just gonna yes. say, especially the uh, Alan Cumming well, Nightcrawler. Has, 
Yeah. It has this undertone of, like, kind of having a message of, like, don't judge people by how they look because they might be a society of nice monsters, so don't be a dick. And also, to me, it feels more like an epic fantasy. Like, it has a lot of horror elements to it. But, like, to me, I'm like, this has a whole mythos. There is this whole big society. Yeah. I feel like, mm-hmm. and I kind of want to know Lord of the Rings, it. but sexy. Yeah, that's, and that's how they get you, and that's how you know that you're gay is when you want to know more about Midian. It's <laughs> true. Yes. Uh, incidentally, incidentally, because I'm the weird theological knowledge person after our Lair of the White Worm episode, Midian, incidentally, a Bible reference. Yeah, one of the, uh, that's uh, the descendants Moses of one of the was yeah. right. Uh don't believe so it's the place where some of the descendants of abraham settled it's not strictly mentioned that closely i don't believe okay i thought it was where moses saw the burning bush oh no he was actually an exile in midian you're right okay i was like it's been a long ass time since i've read the bible so i don't remember (laughs) and when you go to sunday school they just tell you that he was in the desert they don't Mm. really give you the even though it is laid out in most translations of the bible they don't tell you the regions because they're weird because they were made by people who didn't have GPS yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after Boone gets shot, um, he like comes back to life in the morgue because he was bitten by one of the Nightbreed. And so he goes back to Midian and they bring him into their society and because they're like, oh, you're one of us. Because you didn't die. And so then they give him this initiation ceremony where he finds out that they worship Baphomet. And it's a really cool scene. And it's like, it's really. So, like, Narcissus from the hospital ends up there too. And he's like, hey, we're here. And, like, he's so happy about it. And everyone's just <laughs> like, yeah, you're one of us now. It's just a really nice moment. And all these background characters. So, there's like a character with like porcupine quills. Um, there's a yeah, guy who's got a rules. dog, like this guy just holding the moon a dog, face guy. which is, it's yeah. very fun. Yeah. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. a guy with a face shaped like a moon, like fucking Mac tonight. Mm-hmm. One of them mm-hmm. looks like, um, the bad guy, the one that bites Boone at the very beginning of the movie looks kind of like Thrax from, uh, Osmosis Jones. I hate <laughs> yeah, how yeah. you are. <laughs> <laughs> that had to be like a, a direct like sourcing like i oh. i can't unsee it now they, they are so similar it, yes. it's so funny to me and then you have the reminder and what was that, the name yeah. of the no you go ahead and then you have the reminder that the film was made by a slightly stuffy englishman because one of the night breeds weird tendencies is just having nipple rings and tattoos <laughs> yeah. yeah which in 1990 um, was a bit weirder granted he's supposed to be one of the less grotesque night breed in the context of the story is that the one with comedic, the comedic side character the little french the frenchy dog <laughs> i think that's yeah, yeah. the guy yeah yeah there's also I, I a little him. girl who looks normal but she starts to disintegrate in the sun at one point yeah. Um, well, and I love what they did with that too, because she didn't just disintegrate; she like had different phases that of mm-hmm. deterioration, where instead of just like crumbling to dust or something, she like turned into a completely different creature. And like you could really tell the practical effects team did such a they did such an amazing job with everything. The thing I love about this movie is the attention to detail in like the things you wouldn't normally think about like the way they just portray the world that they live in and the way that these people look shows that the the creative team has thought about these people's personalities these people's day-to-day lives who are their friends who are their enemies like the writer shit that everyone tells you to do but no one ever does because it's boring and it takes forever (laughs) at least i never do it because i'm lazy but these guys did it and it really really pays off especially like in the Mm -hmm. side characters they just do these little human specificity things that are just endearing to no degree i love the guy when when Lori shows up in Minion and she like walks past this one guy and he goes, he he like he like scoffs and then he goes, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. I love those like little tiny like character moments so much in this movie. Yeah, yeah. All of these characters are just really endearing, um, which yeah, it contributes a lot to the film. Uh, makes it stand out, I think, especially from the 
horror movies at the time. Uh, so Lori goes to look for Boone, and she goes. To, she makes friends with this woman named Cheryl Ann, and they go to the cemetery together where the entrance to Midian is. And after Lori rescues the little girl who was like dying in the sunlight, then she gets to go to Midian to find Boone, and um, they're reunited. And um, I don't know. There's a, a lot of there's a lot of lore reveal and a lot of like. Decker plotting frame, uh, but it all basically leads to this big epic battle between like Decker leading the police against the Nightbreed, um, because he wants to kill them all. They're like they give this backstory that all the monsters of folklore are like actually just the Nightbreed, and they're a different race of people, and they're really nice and chill, but humans don't like them because they look scary. Watching Decker do anything in this movie is the equivalent of an incoming niche pro wrestling reference. There's a promo for that Hulk Hogan cut in 95 where he hypes up both a match and his pasta restaurant at the Mall of America. <laughs> and the surrealism of seeing a very well-played, vaguely Jeffrey Combs-ish uh, serial killer as the main villain in this movie, and then remembering it's the director of fucking Scanners... Mm -hmm. It's so <laughs> surreal. I mean, for a director actor, I generally think actor directors make our 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 actors are better at directing than directors are at acting, just statistically. But like Cronenberg does decent work here. It is just so weird mm -hmm. because oh yeah, it's the Videodrome guy. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because he he and Barker are probably fairly you know admirers of each other's work. They're transatlantic equivalents of each other in a lot of ways. They work um, together in like uh, quite a few things. Um, also, holy shit! I'm reading this right now. I'm also on the Wikipedia page. Uh, someone said uh, many years ago exactly what we we're saying about this movie, calling it the first truly gay horror fantasy epic, explaining how the unconsummated relationship between doctor and patient, in his view, is the central theme. Well, maybe you don't agree with that second part, but the first part, uh, you know who fucking said that shit? Hmm. Who? Alejandro, Roger Ebert? Alejandro Jodorowsky. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, so Jodorowsky's a fan of this movie. Wonderful. That's kind of awesome. I mean, Jodorowsky's pretty chill. Like, he's made stuff I like and then stuff I didn't quite like so much. I like Santa Sangre. But, like, yeah, that is, of all people, to be really into Nightbreed. He's not my, like, <laughs> last choice. Because, like, he did Nurture. He wrote a very good comic book series. But I guess I just don't think of him most of the time. So seeing that name was, again... The amount of endor the, the level of endorsement that Barker had as a director was very strong very quickly. And I think a lot of it had to do with, I mean... Who's ever had a debut as good as Hellraiser, to be honest? True. Well, and also, I just... This world seems so well thought out that I feel like... His pitches must have had the energy of someone who knew exactly what they wanted to do, but also had the creative energy that being a part of it, you felt like you would have a chance to get your voice in. This motherfucker. I think that's what's great about fantasy epics that like it makes a good one take so long because it takes so much creative effort. Yeah. yeah. And we know for a fact, we know for a fact that Clive Barker is like God tier in boardrooms because everyone has talked about how inherently like charismatic and dope he is to talk to which you know which is how an incredibly niche dude like him uh has been able to uh essentially define late 20th and early 21st century horror for a lot of people so um yeah there's a a big battle and boone um finds out that there's a prophecy about midian being destroyed and uh, he talks to baphomet who uh, helps him basically they end up destroying the entire city and so at the end um the nightbreed are all taking shelter and he promises to go find them a new home and uh walks off into the sunset there's apparently ragnarok being... stole this movie's twist <laughs> <laughs> this of course this apparently being slightly different from the original theatrical cut but it seems like you can't really find that cut very much anymore the director's yeah. cut seems to have just replaced it in the public consciousness um, yeah 
the partly because it was a Shout Factory release, and they have a tendency to do that because they put out really good work. Yeah, well, it sounds like the original cut wasn't that great, from what I've heard. Sixteen minute. It's about eighteen minutes shorter. Damn. I don't know eight. I don't. I can't find eighteen minutes of footage. I would cut. I mean, yeah. The overall editing cadence, I will say, is a little awkward, though that may have just been me being a little tired when I watched it. Like, the overall pace feels a bit off, so it's very possibly a reconstructed cut. Maybe, you know, I mean, probably with a very different person at the computer than the person who was originally at the Moviola. But, you know, I in terms of overall construction from scene to scene, I don't really think there's anything you should have gotten rid of. Apparently Narcisse survives in the theatrical cut, which, I mean, I like him, so fine, yeah. but, you know, it's, mm-hmm. the stakes still have to raise even in that final moment, even in those final minutes, so I don't yeah. disagree with killing him off. Yeah, so there's- I a... love that character so much. Me too. So I think overall, uh, how do we feel about this movie? Um, I really like this movie, and when I'm watching it, I always feel like- Boone is like very bisexual. <laughs> I I also love this movie. I do think that there is so much wonderful queer subtext in like I mean there's always been this um kind of queer reading of horror where like they are the monsters are othered and outcast by society and this one is like the most literal version of that where that's literally what they have to face and they are they have a lot of fashion that is very evocative of queer culture they have like moments where they like flirt with each other and of course Mm -hmm. find their own community and build it up and then that community gets destroyed by the fucking police and they have to go out and find a new home yeah. And rebuild it themselves. I think that's something that is very common in the queer community. I mean, Stonewall. And, like, I'm yeah. not saying it's a one-to-one parallel, but I think these themes are there. And I think that is why they have connected with so many people in the queer community. And, like, I have heard drag queens reference this movie a lot in terms of inspiration for shows and fashion and desires. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I love, it's the embracing of the weird as powerful and sexual and interesting and i i think a lot of horror movies tend to just purely frame it as the grotesque and the dangerous and this one's like what is more grotesque than a psychiatrist who hates you and the cops nothing right Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah uh yeah but i really like the way you worded that um because yeah i think that before this like a lot of horror movies with queer subtext were writing the like the monsters as evil um, the villain yeah yeah but like in this movie like the monsters are good and like very likable and friendly and peaceful and they're the ones who are queer coded so i think that's like one of the first times i've really seen that happen in a horror movie and uh, i really appreciate it and um, then there's also mm-hmm. like the interesting parallel of how like all of the literal monsters don't like to hurt people but the human character of the psychiatrist is like an is like a serial killer. Yeah. So there's the implication that the night breed have like a have to some degree an impulse to eat people. That's also the reason why they don't why they live on their own. There's that one guy that does and he's just kind of like I'll do what I want. I don't care. Yeah, um, I felt like it was more portrayed like with a lot of chill. sympathy. Yeah, I felt yeah. like it was more just yeah. him trying to like scare Boone, like, "Oh, you came too close to our territory, and I want you to go away." Well, he 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 did bite Boone though, so he's. I mean, like... true. There is a very performative, <laughs> and which I guess could reinforce what we're saying. A very performative aspect to the way they act, partly mm-hmm. because for us as the audience, it's entertaining, but also because like you know that is what they do they they sort of play out a very sort of burlesque of um horror movie portent even though they're kind of goofy looking and not particularly threatening um mm-hmm. to keep people away and the the great sequence when lori like descends further and further and further down into the depths of midian probably the the most religious the film gets symbolically as she just sees more and more 
grotesqueries. Do we know who did the effects for this? Because, like... I don't remember. It, it feels, like, on the level of, like, Rick Baker's best work, but I don't believe it was Rick Baker, because it's a, a little low budget for his pay grade at the time. But it's... Let I wouldn't be surprised if it was check. someone from his or Savini's, like, stable, mostly because, admittedly, most makeup people back then were from those two groups, but... It definitely has, like, the, uh, maybe, like, Greg Nicotero or somebody like that. Like, one of those, like, elite-level makeup people. Um, Dang, there's a which, huge makeup crew on this. I'm looking at the production design department, people. and there's just a huge crew on here. Jesus. So we, there may not even Gary. be, like, a head artist. Yeah, there's um, not really... Um... Eileen Seaton is listed as the key makeup artist who also did the makeup for the Brendan Fraser mummy movies. Wow. Oh, hell yeah. That's and for really um <laughs> and for Hellraiser. So that yeah, makes, Hellraiser. that makes sense. The credits the credits uh refer to uh Clyde Barker thanks a couple of people for allowing him to put together a reunion of sorts and it's very clearly the hellraiser reunion yeah um doug bradley um, is, is also a, in this movie such yeah, a doug... warm and like such a warm and like likable thing for a director to do as well to admit that one of the reasons he wanted to make the movie was to hang out with his friends again it's such a i sweet... mean that's the best reason for making a movie real right, i feel right. like horror does that more than most movies like where they just full-on say we want to make a movie with my friends well because like horror fuck is... you if you think that's not a good enough reason horror is relatively affordable to make and almost every horror movie ever made has made its money back and probably some more um mm -hmm. so like if you're a studio it's like okay i'll let you do whatever weird shit you want i'll let you bring on these people because we don't have to look for anybody make your fucking days and most people do, you know. It's why you have people like, you know, Roger Corman, who incidentally was interviewed recently and said if he was going to break into the business the same way he did in the 50s, he'd do it the same way. Make a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I do want to talk about, because um, while I do think there's a lot of queer subtext in this movie, the main relationship puzzles me. Because I'm like, is this... Like, they seem to have pretty good chemistry, but at the same time, I'm, like, just kind of, I guess, conflicts with the queer reading of the film, and it's also, See, like... See, in my mind, I don't think it does, but that's just because the way I read Boone is that he was in this relationship with this girl before he realized he was quote-unquote a monster, um, but then he still realizes that he loves her, which in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, he's a bisexual and like, he's that he just like figured something out about himself that he didn't realize before. Yeah. I mean, that does make sense. I guess I just like, I, I want something more explicit on screen and obviously yeah. we don't get that until much later. Um, cause You're this movie came out in 1990. 1990. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, I do. Think I will say I found them more interesting than most romantic couples, mostly because I just again the little details they add in. Like she's a rock singer, and I love love the song she sang. I need to look up the oh, lyrics because the there were so many interesting, like sadomasochistic kind of lyrics within it that I was like, ooh, okay, yes, that's so interesting. Awesome. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I've really enjoyed that scene because I've heard that song before. Um, Johnny Get Angry, I think is what it's called. Uh, but yeah, it's like yeah. basically about how um, this woman just really wants like a super macho manly man. She's like, I want a caveman. I want like just a brutal guy like to be super manly. And, um, I don't know, to me that, like, came off as, like, kind of a, almost a parody. Because, like, especially at the beginning of this film, before, um, before Boone realizes he's a monster, it kind of, like, their relationship feels very, like, like a parody. Like, very Ken and Barbie, like, this 
parody of heterosexuality. So she's singing the song about this uber masculine man. Um, cause that's like what she's supposed to sing. And so I do think that like once they're both in Midian, I like their relationship a lot more. It feels a lot more like honest and, um, mm-hmm. also Lori just been... being well, like it's... welcomed into the group of Nightbreed also. They're like, heck yeah, come on, join us. It's just kind Ironically, of nice. She's... Ironically, she's also vindicated in, um, wanting a rougher, uh, dude. When he becomes like a motherfucker who can eat people, yeah, true. So like, this is ironically true. and compellingly, in a way that I actually find interesting, her wanting that, which seems to be framed as somewhat genuine. Also, incidentally, Johnny Get Angry is a song from '62, so it's that sort of puts it into a, a broader social context, which is interesting. It's literally an oldie that she's doing kind of a modern rendition of. Her wanting that doesn't contradict her agency or initiative that she takes, which I think is kind of interesting because that's often framed in a lot of, uh, in a lot of stories as a contradiction. Not, but not really. I mean, that's a matter of, you know, now granted the, obviously like, you know, how much does she like that Boone is a night breed versus like, well, she's not resisting it because she's still wants to be with him. Um, you know, it's, it's, we don't really get to see like how she responds much more directly to him being a monster because by the time they've actually gotten back together, uh, the story is over, but there's an implication of like, oh yeah, this dude is like extremely powerful and doesn't look that grotesque, especially compared to the other Nightbreed because the protagonist, there's a bit of wish fulfillment on multiple levels happening here is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because I don't ever feel like that's a conflict between their relationship. Honestly, I do think their relationship is a bit underdeveloped. Like, the main conflict is, will she like him yeah. if he's a different kind of hot than the hot he was before? <laughs> and, Twilight. Like, very much. but, right. like, he's not abusive. At least he doesn't seem abusive to her. Even when he's eating people, you're kind of like, oh, she's fine. Well, he does he does tell her like I don't want you to see me being extremely brutal and awful during that moment where he like goes into that room where everyone's like dead and he just like starts like licking blood off the counters and shit. Which is fucking great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, but I guess maybe my this movie does a great job of making me sympathetic because even when he's doing that i'm like god do what you gotta do and whereas when the therapist i don't know says stuff about anything i'm like oh fucking you you guy like they do a very good job making the nightbreed sympathetic even when they do horrible things like the guy who says i'm gonna eat you and then the next scene he's like eh bros will be bros what are you gonna do Right. Yeah. Like the other guy he's with. Oh, this is one of my favorite lines. The guy he's with was like, "No, you can't. It's the law." And the guy goes, "Fuck the law. I want meat." <laughs> I'm like, "That's yeah. that my mood every day." Fuck the law. Uh, I want meat. Is incidentally, uh... this is very much like a gay encounter in which, like, this dude like isn't sure if the other guy is into him, but by God, he's gonna flirt anyways. <laughs> The man is literally the color of one of the more brutal cruising handkerchiefs in handkerchief code. Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 I, I mean, yes. I mean, that, that's that's obviously not a good faith reference because literally every color exists in that code. But you know, I, yeah. I had to make the joke. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to add to the the queer reading, there is a line I can't remember what the context of it is where they say they're jealous of what we have. And I oh, think that the, is um, so the, interesting. Um, and I, the dream, the the thing that Porcupine Lady was talking about with uh, Lori, um, where right. she's like, you know, we we can fly and change and turn into wolves and things, and that's not a bad thing. Um, and you can't do that. But when you dream, you think of flying and shape shifting and all of those things, and it's like you envy us and what what you envy you destroy ah it's so good 
Which is an interesting line. thing because, like, a lot of, you know, superheroes as being on the margins metaphors, right? I mean, X-Men has been criticized for this a lot. Like, realistically, you are active. Like, realistically, these people are actively more powerful than the society that is subjugating them. So the metaphor gets a bit strained in places. Well, here that metaphor is... Here they, they give that metaphorical context of the film room to breathe and establish within the fiction, yes, these people are actually... You know, there is something to envy about them. They are not... You know, they're not particularly wretched, you know, when they're not actively being slaughtered. And so through sort of allowing that metaphor to sort of... Uh, shift around the needs of the narrative which is an important thing to do uh the metaphor maintains its cogency and its overall relevance within the context of the film uh which is the thing that you know the uh the the, the have you tried not being a mutant scene from i think it's x-men 2 <laughs> is an example i cite as things getting a bit strained when you're trying too hard to be discursive and yeah, and it's it's not a one-to-one parallel. I think we mentioned this before. Of course, if it was, there would be a hell of a lot of problematic things with, like, you know, their demons, and it kind of look a little funky. Like, it's, of course, not a one-to-one parallel, but it's a great... It's a great insight into, like, certain feelings and certain experiences um, that might not be presented in other... Like, a fucking Jason movie wouldn't touch this kind of material. I mean, and of course not. it's... It's really moving. Like, I, I am moved by it. I am inspired by it. And, like, I feel like my sympathies are challenged and my, like, conceptions of what is right and what is wrong are challenged. And I like that. Of course, it's not, you know, something super... It's also campy and fun and a- approachable to, like, a mass audience. So, like, it's not going to be, like Aaron said, not something so preachy that it's inaccessible. But it's... Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. I think that notion of accessibility really ties into why I admire Barker so much, right? You got to remember, in the 80s in the UK, when he was becoming himself as an artist, this guy comes from theater, right? He could have maintained his relevance in a particular niche of gay writers who wrote exclusively for gay audiences, you know, essentially reinforcing and regalvanizing a group of people that he knew really well and that he knew would probably always support his work. Uh, in the 80s in the UK, you had Derek Jarman, one of the greatest filmmakers in all of England at that time, considered at the time to be one of England's greatest filmmakers. You had the great uh, early 80s film My Beautiful Laundrette. You had this pretext, but it was all independent. It was all only reaching the people who wanted it, who wanted it to reach them. You know, It was film festivals in a time before internet. So Barker decides, and I think this is a conscious decision, though I don't know if he's ever spoken to it like that. I'm going to take these forms in a time when, you know, the word popular culture is coined in the late 80s by a sociologist, I believe, some kind of egghead. And so this is before anyone really, this is before like the idea of exalting low culture had become like as common an idea as it is today. Of course, people, the also gay, brilliant gay director Kenneth Anger does that too. And is, you know, still around. Um, but he decides, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to access this low culture stuff, this kitsch, this camp. And in so doing, I'm going to embed my beliefs, my identity, myself into the world meaningfully. And like most people haven't heard of Derek Jarman or my beautiful laundrette plenty of people have heard of Hellraiser and that's the triumph of you know he's kind of the in in many ways one of the earliest you know prestige horror directors you know a lot of directors from the 70s didn't just do horror but um but he's one of the first prestige horror directors as we would understand it today that not only did he care about making good movies that were horror movies he cared about accessing horror and making horror in a way making horror great in a way that only horror can be great and in so doing he becomes i mean he's very clearly a guiding light for this thing i show up on every once in a while you know i love how no one knows when i'm when i'm done monologuing so there's just like 
a pregnant pause for a few seconds. I try to get better at putting the period on things, but can never quite find hey, it. Hey, no, I'm I'm marinating in the knowledge because like yeah. there was a lot in it that was quite wise. And I'm like, damn, gonna let this yeah. chicken marinate. Yummy. <laughs> reason Yummy why it's the reason why my, you know, script that is both that is incredibly gay is also incredibly redneck, incredibly religious, and incredibly funny. Well, if I do it right anyway. <laughs> I think it makes people laugh, but yeah. It made me laugh. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, yeah, your, yeah. your fucking livelihood is wrapped up in it, so it better have made yeah. you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, I want to talk more about David Cronenberg's performance, because, man, he is sleazy in this movie, and I love it. For real. <laughs> Pause before you said in this movie. This well, I didn't want people to think so I was sleazy. talking about him. Because I don't. This know motherfucker made Videodrome. I don't care if he fucking. <laughs> I don't care if he runs an orphanage. Like you have to have an irreducible minimum of fucked uptivity to make the kinds of work that Gronenberg has made. That he he's got a movie in theaters right now. That's oh apparently God, that, still fucked up. That movie it's was really. Great. But you know what's great about him? What? I think he's aware of his fucked upness and has found a proper channel for it as opposed to people who are like, no, I am a priest. I could never be fucked up. And then they're the most fucked up fuckers of them all. Like, if you can't acknowledge the ways in which you personally are fucked up, I'm a little, I'm a little um, wary. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he doesn't like, uh, stories of his character seem fairly neutral. Mm-hmm. He's a weird dude, but he attracts other weird dudes. So he's not considered particularly harmful. And obviously yeah. his movies are fucking great. Yeah. Like, I mean, if, if Cronin... If if Barker is on the Mount Rushmore of 80s horror directors, which is weird because he's British, then Cronenberg, also not American, will be right next to him. So the metaphor <laughs> got away from me for a little bit there. And I don't know very many American directors I'd even put on that list from the 80s. Damn, that was the worst metaphor I've ever come up with. <laughs> John Carpenter would probably be on there. Right, but his best um, horror work is in the 70s. I mean, I love Friends of Darkness and... Uh, in the Mouth of Madness, which is from the 90s. I mean, the well, if we're going the with this Mount Rushmore metaphor, Teddy Roosevelt wasn't a founding father. Yeah, real. Neither was Lincoln. Put him up there. We should have just put some British people on Mount Rushmore, too. It would have been mm. funny. I think we shouldn't have done anything to that mountain. But, well, I you agree. Know. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah. But... Even for patriotic art, it is a bit gauche, one has to acknowledge. And I say that as someone who is, you know more into Americana than probably don't want to speak for anyone else here, but I'm probably the most into Americana of the people present for this podcast. True. Well, and granted, this is true of everything in America. I, wasn't it on stolen land, too? Yes, it was on mm-hmm. stolen ma- land on a sacred mountain uh, made by a and member they didn't of the get... KKK. Yep. With <laughs> no permission from the Native Americans who lived there to do it. They just did it. Yeah, so, um, Mount Rushmore sucks. But anyway, back to Nightbreed. <laughs> uh, I'm putting that on Twitter. Cronenberg's, the whole thing, if we're relating this back to gay stuff, his character is, oh boy, um, he's like the uh, personification of conversion therapy in my mind. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And that and that is kind of what irked me a little bit about the reviews being like, oh, the the queer subtext is between the therapist and the and Boone. And I'm like, I didn't really no. get as much of that here. I, I agree with you. I kind of got more of a conversion therapy vibe. Um, yeah, no, he's literally like sitting there setting up and framing this kid for multiple murders and like all of this shit that's like going wrong outside of things meanwhile also like gaslighting him and telling him he's an awful person and like all this other stuff so it's it's literally like taking all of all of the problems that the people who run conversion therapy you know the the white christian kind of people in my mind um society's upstanding quote-unquote citizens who are actually taking all this shit making it worse and then blaming it on someone who doesn't have anything to fucking do with anything 
and saying, you're wrong, you're awful, and it's because you're a part of this community. And yeah, that's what I that's what I get from that. Yeah. If you've ever been mentally or emotionally damaged by a therapist, raise your hand. Uh, my Ooh. hand, I, I have both hands in the air. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, and the whole movie, I was like waiting for his explanation of why he does what he does. And from what I remember of the scene where he explains it, it's just. He does it because he feels like he it. He doesn't like breeders. It seems he doesn't like with like life is grown and nurtured. Question mark. Yeah, because yeah. he murders like family with chil- families with children, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Also, it's interesting. And, like I loved that family life too. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. It is interesting that like in a you know I I do you know in in a in a film about. And this is probably in hindsight, because I don't think the place had this reputation in 1990. But it is really funny that a film about, like, the subjugation of people on the margins is set... Of all the places in North America to set this film, they set it in Canada. (laughs) Now, it still works, obviously, because Canada's not perfect. Obviously. And also because they set the film specifically maybe accidentally in the province of Alberta, which is known as Canada's Texas and is known as being a bit, a bit more old school than uh, the rest of Canada, though not, probably not to the degree that Texas is for the United States. Um, But like the oil money, um, it's where all of Canada's pro wrestlers are from, the Hart family are from uh, Calgary, Um, stuff like that. It was probably chosen, again, for the cognitive dissonance of Canadian hero, and director of Bygod Scanners, David Cronenberg, playing the main villain. I will never not. I will never get over that. I can't, I've said that. How fucking weird that. I feel like I'm losing my mind. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> he directed The Fly. He fucking turned Jeff Goldblum into goop. And this motherfucker is stabbing people. And like not embarrassing himself as an actor. Okay, here's the thing, though. He was also in Jason X, like, at, right after this. <laughs> so, like... Yeah. I also forget how early Jason X was, come to think of it. But, it yeah. was it was the early 2000s, um, late 90s. Oh, well, this is 90, but yeah, like, he's, he's done acting gigs, I know. But it is funny. I mean, he's fairly photogenic for a director who are roundly hideous people most of the time. he's kind of like i would say he's kind of like unattractive in an interesting way like if you look at his not me i think he's a cutie patootie uh i don't know for me i'm like if you look at his features like that man should not be attractive but he has like a charisma that kind of makes him want to muss his hair it's like makes him magnetic he does have great hair screen i think i don't know and this might be my disillusionment with Hollywood and uh, asexuality talking. For me, attractiveness is interestingness. Because, like, when I look at a yeah. MCU hero or something, nothing goes off in my brain. I'm just like, okay. Or, like, someone who's, like, supposed to be, like, muscly and built. Like, it's that's not what makes them attractive. To me, it's, like, the, the interesting quality of personality and, like, thought thoughtness going in their brains. I don't know. I don't yes. know. Or like what is it? The the random lady who shows up and is really kind to um the Lori. She yes. is also so hot to me because we get so many little snippets of what kind of a person she is, which is so yeah. rare for horror side characters. Normally it's like, My name's Judy, my deal is I slept with my cousin. Get and like that's all you get. <laughs> Sorry. Um but this woman Okay I, you know, they get a thing they get like one stupid thing that's clearly just meant to be like a bit instead of a character trait, mm-hmm. and then they move on after they die but this woman feels like she has a story she has a life she has seen some shit she had a one night stand with david cronenberg (laughs) and it was just and she's kind and she's kind in a way that people are kind that is never really seen in horror movies and i just i see that with a lot of the side characters in this movie especially Mm -hmm. in the the midian world yeah Yeah. i love how they introduce her when uh laurie is crying in the bathroom and she goes in and she's like, is it, ma- is it a man or money? And she's like, when I cry, it's usually one of those. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, the time that, like, 
because I, I will say that on a technical level, a lot of this movie felt a little undercooked in places. Mm-hmm. That sequence is where I felt like the movie came together the most. Yeah. You know, it just... Mm-hmm. And, like, a humanism that isn't inherent to horror now or in the, or of the period, so... Yeah. I, I, I need to talk about something that happens with them, and it doesn't really have anything to do with them. It's just something that I realized one of the last couple of times that I've watched this movie, and it's that when uh lori and what's her name i don't remember what her name is um it was like Anne or something like that um i'm looking it up uh, cheryl ann cheryl ann cheryl ann so and lori and cheryl ann drive out to midian um there's a song playing on the radio and it's like a country song but when you listen to it, you realize that it's a, a cover of Skin by Oingo Boingo. Um, it's a country music cover of Skin by Oingo Boingo. And I just thought that was very funny considering Danny Elfman is the composer of that movie. <laughs> it is very funny. And like um, most Danny mm-hmm. Elfman soundtracks, it just kind of sounds like every other Danny Elfman soundtrack. But it's nice yeah yeah he's not a very uh, he's not a very like varied composer but it's good style Lots i just like... i just love him sneaking in one of his own band songs but using a country music version that just makes that me very funny because that's um, almost like the year laugh. that he officially like the year that he officially splits from oingo boingo to dedicate himself fully to composing which was a big thing for him like, yeah he didn't want to do that but obviously like he couldn't do both yeah, I don't want to go. Boingo would probably run its course, you know, the with the end of like the '80s post-punk stuff, you know. Um, so we, I'm not we sure were... when specifically he split from the band, but I do remember they had a couple of tours after this. Um, so we were talking earlier about this uh, friendship between Laurie and Cheryl Ann, and I wanted to say I think that's like what makes this movie work is that all of the characters' relationships are pretty believable um, mm-hmm. and really interesting to watch. And, like, even though sometimes Except the ironically lore... ironically the main couple. Yeah. The lore kind of gets a, a bit, I don't know, muddled. But, like, I don't know. Those are just small details that don't really matter as much to me because, like, the, there's such a human heart to this movie that it's yeah what makes it compelling to watch and it's the reason why i've come back to watch this movie several times if you're going to make a movie about humanity and the lack thereof and what it means to be human you better have good characters (laughs) that feel real real. i want to and are done well that's all i gotta say i absolutely agree and on that note i kind of wanted to bring up two of the main characters in the third act the horrifying sheriff i guess three characters um but one of them comes in before the third act the horrifying sheriff who's just absolutely murder happy the priest Mm -hmm. who i find so interesting And then, um, I can't remember her name, but she can turn into mist, and that's her deal. I really like her. Yeah. But yeah, the the police officer, I think, is pretty, you know, on the nose of, like, the system that's supposed to be in place to protect you is actually here to oppress and kill you. Uh, pretty clear. Um, at least to me. That's what I was getting from that. Um, and then the priest almost had like a redemption like he was like i want to be the night breed i want to be here and then he like spills some goop on him in baphomet's like don't do that and then he's like the night breed like he wanted and then he says he's gonna kill the night breed and but then he kills the sheriff who also wants to kill the night breed and that's where i get a little what that's that's just weird like if he was trying to find them to like join up with them as kind of a parallel of what boone is doing that would have been more interesting he's already like again the barker thing of weird uh of weird like off the beaten path progressive theology a priest who doesn't believe in hell not an unheard of opinion but a marginal opinion um like the guy in hellraiser like the priest in hellraiser 3 who doesn't believe in 
demons. Um, you know, stuff like that. So he's already primed to be interested in these people. And then it just kind of, you know, that's one of the weird. Well, and he's the one who's weird. like, these are women and children we're killing here. These are innocent people. And then he just decides, eh, fuck it. They had goop that made me different. Yeah, I guess it could be like the magical influence of Baphomet. It's the, um, the, in my mind, what I'm thinking is like, it's the participation of quote unquote sin. And that's where he's like, I'm going to destroy you because basically you've corrupted a holy man, quote unquote. When, yeah, you know. I am. It does fit kind of nice with the queer reading of the film. Um, if this is something mm-hmm. you're struggling with, but uh, I also some of it, I think I just chalk up to like the different cuts of the movie, and um, yeah, maybe just being edited a little bit weirdly because it was put together so many years after the movie was originally released. And there's the obvious, you know, like even if Barker was extremely straight dude's english he doesn't he probably wouldn't have that much respect for religious authority like i mean dawkins is from there (laughs) yeah so inevitably he's gonna satirize the priest and you know even if the priest is depicted as even if the priest is depicted as potentially being more on their side the cognitive dissonance of his uh of his religion that inherently drives him against the night breed which again, a perfectly fair critique, uh, is going to be the thing that wins out in that final moment. I feel like if I feel like if like as, as fun as the sheriff is as a camp villain, if you want to make this movie a better story, you have the priest be like the main figure throughout. You parallel him to the Nightbreed throughout the entire film, and then you lead to a much more interesting story about a character who's actually somewhat conflicted and conflicted throughout about his responses to the Nightbreed. And I think in a more modern context, a more modern version of this film, we now have a greater understanding of the potential that people have to change and become more accepting of those outside of, um, and what it takes to make a person change like that. In 1990, it was, you were kind of all or nothing. In a lot of cases, you either were directly involved in all of this or you were opposed to it. Um, These days, I mean, how many churches were at Pride this year? fucking lot of them so inevitably a modern a modern retelling of the film that would be a thing that would change would be okay the priest may still end up being a villain but the layers of complexity with which he approaches and which the story approaches that situation would be inherently more complex because it is inherently more complex queer theology is like a thing now and i mean it was in 1990 but it's now like a thing that is accepted by like major governing church bodies and dank, and dank Christian memes, incidentally. Oh my god. Dank Christian memes on Facebook, shout out. <laughs> yeah, and then with the research. lady with the... <laughs> the lady with the mist, I don't really have much cerebral thoughts in regard to her, although I do see her as the wisest figure in this movie to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's just got this very nurturing, mothering presence because, you know, she has an actual child and she and Lori have this really great bonding moment where even though Lori doesn't know what this child is, doesn't know how it reacts, but she just picks him up and gently returns the child to her mother and it's very sweet. And then she turns into mist and she's Nikki and then she kills people by kissing them with mist and I like it. <laughs> yeah. This movie also has a... I'm thinking about it. Um, if I were to like group this movie with some other films, um, Twilight for one, Twilight. just the first one, just because of the um, the way that the main relationship is structured, um, Little Monsters because of the um, the world building of the monster world. And then, um, Small Soldiers? Does that make sense to y'all? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, I would okay. like some elaboration, okay. too. So, Small Soldiers is basically, like, there's toys and they come to life and whatever. Um, 
one of the sets of toys is a bunch of military dudes and then the other set is monsters and the monsters are just trying to get back home um and the uh military dudes are just trying to destroy them and oh, I in do the process see where you're going of, with that. I see. In the process, mm-hmm. they, like, totally, like, ruin this kid's neighborhood and, like, try to murder his neighbors and him and his dog. <laughs> and they make an army of Frankenstein Barbies at one point, which doesn't really have anything to do with anything except for the fact that it was terrifying. Um, yeah, weirdly Thanks, Joe Dante. Yeah. Barbie is, like, weirdly yeah. fetishy, and uh, mm-hmm. that always made me uncomfortable yeah (laughs) yeah this movie has a naked woman emerging from the mist and i still feel like small soldiers like was so much yeah no small small soldiers was like the barbie scene was fetishy in a way that was supposed to make you feel like you need to throw up (laughs) i mean nudity is not inherently sexual right i mean yeah it's just it just be her body and and sometimes she makes mist that's just it's the it's the way that the um the military dolls in small soldiers were the ones creating these uh um lady murder weapon girls and they're like they have like all fucked up faces and yet they're like like all of the military soldiers are still sexualizing the bodies of the barbie dolls real fucked up <laughs> yeah uh so Back back to Nightbreed. Um, do we have any last thoughts? Go movie. I wanna be I wanna be a uh I wanna be a Nightbreed. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to the rest of the group for not uh making the obvious joke that Boone's first name is also mine. Oh, I was gonna say, oh yeah, it's Aaron Wait. Boone. Um, but I didn't say anything because um, the last time I mentioned a character was named Aaron, you were uncomfortable with that because it was creep. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. I loved creep, but god damn it. Yeah, it's like they were talking directly to you the whole time. <laughs> and he's a filmmaker, too. I would wow. like to think that, that our Aaron is not as naive as, as creep Aaron, though. Oh, yeah, like, no, you're, you're definitely Aaron... not as sit through a session of tubbies and then still go into the woods i'm sure he would and then he would also critique he would also critique the uh camera work and all of that for the tubby scene (laughs) uh i'm sure we could do that again and yet um you know make the lighting a little better or something (laughs) just like i feel like i'm being i feel like i'm being indicted right now well, I'm just saying that's how you are. <laughs> You're like yeah, this yeah. could be better. Um, I do think maybe if you, you are an artist, stumbled upon Joseph Snuff good. film collection, you would go through and give each of them a, a uh, rating out of ten. <laughs> Philistine uses a ten star rating for movies. Four, obviously. Four. Okay. Well, you can you can do it the Ebert way then. <laughs> Roger Ebert died for your sins. <laughs> uh, okay, we're getting. Off I still need to make you watch so Creep Two just because of reasons. I, um, I'm gonna cut us off here because. Uh... Yeah. Um. Nightbreed. Good movie. Nightbreed. Nightbreed. Good movie. Recommend. Right now, it is free on Tubi TV, so uh, definitely go check it out. You have no excuse not to. Go do it. It was it's on Shutter, but they took it off immediately as I soon know. as we tried to I watch it. I was so salty, but that's okay. It's it's free for everyone to watch now. Uh, and as always, if you want to hear more from our podcast, you can find us on Twitter at Chainsaw Matinee. We have like the actual like uh I don't know what you called your name on Twitter. The tag the or Twitter whatever. handle. Yeah, we have it. We have the actual handle. Chainsaw Matinee. If you need me to spell that, that is C H A I N S A W M A T I N E E. Matinee and not manatee. Which we did have some <laughs> people 
think, which is very funny, and actually, um, spoiler alert, we do have a Chainsaw Manatee sticker in the works. Yep. So, uh, It's really cute. Be on the lookout for that. It's super cute. Um, yeah, thank you so much to all of our listeners for sticking with us. I hope you enjoy this first episode of our new rebranded podcast. And to any new listeners, hello, welcome, and we appreciate you. Yeah. Uh, We're here to scare you, but also welcome, to love welcome, you. Welcome to Midian. Um, this, <laughs> is our, this is our hangout pad. Um, yes. We're going to bite you. And of course, as always, shout out to Jenna for being our highest tier Patreon donor. Thank you. We are also Chainsaw Matinee on Patreon for anyone who wants to throw us some money so we can get cool upgraded equipment and pay an editor and all that fun stuff. I did just moments ago break my mic. (laughs) Sadly. Well, uh, that being said, happy Pride, everybody. Aaron, do you have anything that you would like to promote while you were here? Uh, not really. I was trying to think of a soon. bit, but I... Yeah, I'm... well, soon. Soon you will have a movie to promote. Yes! And yes. we are going to scream to the rooftops about it. Even though, Darn right. Given that it's probably going to do like a standard terrestrial festival run, wouldn't really help. But we'll tell you when it's out anyway. Yeah, As to we have Oklahoma listeners. Run. We have listeners in Oklahoma who can go to the festival and watch it. Well, I guess that 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 does us. Do we still have the same closing catchphrase, or have we changed? Yeah, that? no, I'm keeping uh, it. It's Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. I have to keep it. Um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. And as always, may your nightmares be plentiful. Mm-hmm.